It's one of those mysteries that has haunted the relatives of both families all these years. They've never had any resolution. They've never had any clues. It's very difficult for the police to work out who's telling the truth and who's telling lies and why. They were agitated and they were threatening and they were clearly looking for someone that must have upset them in some way. The question really is this, was she the third victim? I'm Andrew Rule. Welcome to another edition of Life and Crimes. The couple who found the bodies had pulled over on the morning of October the 18th, 1990, a pleasant Thursday. They wanted to collect gum nuts from the trees beside the road on the highway to Adelaide. They found a teenage girl's body face down among some trees beside a parking bay where truckies would pull over to have a rest on the long trip between Adelaide and Melbourne. When the police turned up a little later, they found the second body about 50 metres away. Both bodies had been stabbed. Both were teenagers. One was a girl called Fiona Burns, who had just turned 15. She came from the Melbourne suburb of Langwarren, but had run away a few weeks earlier to Adelaide. The other body belonged to John Lee. He was a very slightly built 14-year-old Adelaide street kid who'd originally come from Mount Gambia before heading to the streets of Adelaide to eke out a living begging and stealing and doing the best he could. He was, in fact, a real street kid. He'd spent a couple of years doing nothing else. Fiona was more of a tourist, in a sense. She came from what had been a stable family home in Langwarren in Melbourne's east, but had grown rather upset and disturbed after her parents had separated a few months earlier. Fiona had taken to running away from home. She was living at first with her father in Langwarren and then with an aunt in Langwarren. She had taken to running away to Adelaide. She would either hitchhike or take the train to Adelaide and hook up with a mob of street kids there who hung around the main shopping malls and begged and smoked and drank and did a bit of petty thievery. The attraction for Fiona was peculiar. She had no real reason to do it. It was hard to say why Fiona would run away from home, apart from the fact that she was unhappy and seemed to find some sort of happiness in the camaraderie of the streets. She had done it before. She had run away from home before and gone to Adelaide and come home. And indeed, a few weeks earlier, she'd turned up at her father's house and said she was back home, but she'd stayed just long enough to sleep the night, wash her clothes have a shower, then she hit the road back to Adelaide. No one really knows why she decided to return to Melbourne or why she decided to bring John Lee with her, but she had told one of her relatives in a phone call home that she was bringing them home a surprise, and it's to be assumed that she was referring to the fact that she had this young friend with her, John Lee, this other street kid. They left Adelaide probably on October the 9th of 1990, and it's thought that they were going to leave on the train and then catch a train out to the outer suburbs and then hitchhike across to Victoria. But some other street kids who were there at the time think that they changed their plans at the last minute and caught a bus out to the outskirts of Adelaide and then hit the the thumb and hitchhiked over to a district near Bordertown, which of course is on the border of Victoria and South Australia. No one really knows what happened there, but... Police over the years have built a bit of a picture or a fragmented picture of various things that went on in that town, in that area. 
But it's come to the Herald Sun's notice over the last few weeks that there was a person and her husband having dinner in a border town pub on the night of October the 10th. This person, we'll call her Jane Black, which is not her real name. Jane Black looked up and she saw these two teenagers come into the bar or the the, uh, lounge of the hotel where she was eating and she realised that they looked quite perturbed and... um, worried and she actually spoke to them and she said oh hi and she she mistook the girl for someone she knew she said oh hello so-and-so thinking she knew her and the girl said no my name's Fiona and she looked quite distinctive this girl Fiona because she had a mohawk haircut that was dyed a sort of a orangey or or um, maroon color quite a bright color and she had this little guy with a this young looking kid who was 14 and they both looked quite worried as if they were trying to keep away from someone who was out in the street. And in fact, this woman that we will call Jane Black suggested to them that they go upstairs in this old pub because upstairs they'd be safer from any pursuers. And they did go upstairs and they hung around for a while and then they went downstairs and they left the hotel. And by that time, Jane Black and her husband had gone home. But Jane Black never actually forgot that incident and she thought about it much later And although she didn't tell the police about it at the time, when the bodies were found, she later thought better of it and contacted people in the media and eventually spoke to myself at the Herald Sun about this this year. And we were able to incorporate her version of the cloudy events of that night into this strange and sinister case of the two teenagers who were murdered beside the road. What we think might have happened is that later that night on October the 10th, 1990, these two had gone out on the road and headed towards Victoria. So they've headed out of border town. They're heading east on the highway towards Victoria. So they've crossed the border and they're walking towards the town of Caniva, which is on the Victorian side of the border. The last known sighting of them is that a girl matching Fiona Byrne's description knocked on a truck driver's window on a truck in a pullover spot and asked for um, a cigarette or something like that. The truck driver, that truck driver later reported this to police and assured them that he didn't know what had happened to them, but that he'd refused to give them a ride and he'd refused to give them a cigarette and he doesn't know what happened after that. It would seem almost certain that whoever saw these two teenagers after that were the last to see them alive. But there's a lot of mystery about what happened, whether it was a rogue truckie, whether it was just a rogue motorist on the way past who picked them up and for some reason was moved to kill them, whether they'd attempted to rob a motorist that had pulled over for them and they'd had a confrontation and the motorist had produced a knife. It's hard to know. It's one of those mysteries that has haunted the relatives of both families all these years. They've never had any resolution. They've never had any clues. One of the big problems is it's in the middle of nowhere. So these kids were coming from Adelaide over to Victoria. They were last really seen in border town. Then they've walked over into Victoria where they've been murdered. And so they were much further from Melbourne than they were from Adelaide, and yet they were still in the jurisdiction of the Victorian Homicide Squad, who, of course, eventually attended and did the best they could to clear up this puzzle, but have never really got anywhere. Along the way, the police have been 
handed vibs and drabs of information. Some of that information has come from the border town woman that we will call Jane Black. She's told homicide investigators in recent times what she knows about what happened on that night. She says, and there's no reason not to believe her, because there's nothing in it for her. She says that on that night she looked into the street outside the hotel and she saw six young men stalking up and down the street as if they were looking for someone. She said she knew two of the men by name. One of those men we can name because he's no longer with us. The other one we cannot name. The second one that we can't name worked in those days at a local slaughterhouse. He was a slaughterman, which is always intriguing when people are found to be murdered with knives because slaughtermen have access to very sharp knives and are very good at using them. Jane Black says that these young men were behaving in a threatening and fairly sinister manner and she in fact spoke to them outside the hotel on her way home with her husband who had had a few drinks and said what are you guys up to and they said oh we're going bunny bashing that means they would go outside town into the paddocks around the town where there are plenty of rabbits and they would spotlight the rabbits but instead of shooting they would use clubs or baseball bats or similar and um, having caught the rabbits in the headlights or the spotlights they would belt them with their clubs Jane Black wasn't very happy about their demeanour. She thought there was something strange and threatening about them. She names one of the men as a local fellow that she knew of called Robert Rackabrat. He lived in a lonely hamlet, a tiny little one-horse town attached to a couple of wheat silos on the Adelaide side of Border Town. This is a little town called Warriga. In 1990, the year we're talking about, Robert Rackabrat was 32 he was a drifter who drank and used drugs too much, fathered rather too many children from too many mothers, and he worked in a string of itinerant jobs. He was uh, a thin, wiry sort of guy. He was heavily tattooed, and according to Jane Black, who is probably a good judge, he was very strange. When she saw this Robert Rackabrat that night, she saw him in a white station wagon, driven by the man who worked at the abattoirs with their four mates. She said they were agitated and they were threatening and they were clearly looking for someone that must have upset them in some way. When she got home that night, just down the road in Bordertown, she was worried about her contact with these guys, so she let her two dogs loose in the yard. She had a couple of willing dogs that would keep burglars away. She let them go in the yard in case these guys came around to hassle her because something about them worried her. The next time she heard about Robert Rackerbrandt, he was shot dead exactly a year later in mid-October 1991, which might be a total coincidence. However, there's some interesting things about that. One is that on the first anniversary of the murders of Fiona Burns and John Lee, there was a flurry of first year anniversary publicity which might have stirred up interest in the case it's conceivable that if Robert Rackerbrad was involved in these murders or knew something about them or knew someone who might have done them that he might have come to grief through that knowledge either he could have committed suicide which is what the coroner thought he did with a rifle or he might have been murdered, which is what his family thought, that he'd been killed by others, because 
Apparently, uh, the bullet that killed him was in a, a place in his body where his family consider it less likely that he shot himself than that someone else did it. It was ruled as a suicide and uh, no more was heard about it. Either way, it is a very interesting mystery to add to the mystery of the murders of the two teenagers. The other aspect which police still have to look at and, and indeed have looked at, no doubt, is of the abattoir worker who has been in touch with the police on and off over the years with various stories, apparently, but none of them really make sense. It's hard to tell whether people are contacting the police to run interference, to draw police away from what really happened, or just what? It's one of those imponderables, and it's very difficult for the police to work out who's telling the truth and who's telling lies and why. After we, the Herald Sun, ran a story about Jane Black's thoughts about the deaths of the two teenagers... We got a letter here at the Herald Sun from an old lady who lives at Caniva. This lady's name is Patricia. Her surname doesn't really matter. She's a widow. She's uh, a mother, a grandmother, and now, in fact, a great-grandmother. But in 1990, she was a young grandmother, and she was driving towards Bordertown to see her daughter and grandchildren who lived in Bordertown. She knows exactly when she was going over there because she wrote a cheque at the local service station to buy fuel, to make the trip. And when she got to Bordertown, she purchased something else using a cheque. And she still has those cheque butts, which date exactly when she was there. She remembers clearly that she drove over during the lunch hour. So she left at around 12.15 or 12.30 Victorian time and drove over to Bordertown, where, of course, is on South Australian time. And she arrived at the same time she left. So she remembers that quite clearly. And on the way across, a few kilometres west of what she calls the plantation where the bodies were found, she saw not two but three young hitchhikers walking towards her. So she's heading west towards Adelaide, towards Watertown, and on the other side of the highway, walking towards her, just where a track meets the highway, she sees three figures. And one is a girl that she said had short hair like a boy except in the middle, dyed orange, she says, which pretty well tallies with the other descriptions of Fiona Burns. She saw a small teenage boy in dark clothes. That tallies very well with the description of John Lee. And she saw a third figure, another girl leading a dog. She said the dog had long flowing hair, light-coloured hair, she said she's not so good on dog breeds, but she thinks it was probably a collie or a collie cross, a sort of a working dog breed. And the dog was straining at the leash, pulling the girl along the road. But she said they were all obviously together. They were walking along together, but in line, one after the other. And they were walking into Victoria. And this is at midday on October the 10th. This poses a very interesting question. Who is the girl with the dog? Did she get picked up by a separate vehicle and head off into Victoria, but then never see that her former hitchhiking companions had been murdered, never contacted police about it to say what she knew or didn't know? Or was she with them when they were picked up by somebody and she decided not to get into a particular vehicle or 
whoever picked them up may not have wanted to pick up three people and a dog. But I'm sure that the police will be very interested to hear from that person with the dog if she's still alive. Because the question really is this, was she the third victim? Read my column in the Sunday Herald Sun and online at heraldsun.com.au. A troubled young woman, her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.